We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio out west. Good morning to you. Overnight, the story surfaced that a Cook County Circuit judge Tracy Porter threw Donald Trump off the Illinois ballot. Now, this reversed the decision made by the Illinois Board of Elections last month that they had no cause to do that. But if you are one huffed up, puffed up judge or some state bureaucrat like the main secretary of state and you want a little attention, you want to get your name in the papers, you want people talking about you on the air, then you throw them off the ballot. That's really absurd because the Supreme Court took the case, the Colorado Supreme Court case, and it is quite obvious that they're going to restore Donald Trump to that ballot and they're going to issue an opinion that says state officials can't do that. But Judge Tracy just had to get in there. So that that happened overnight. Congressional leaders uh, agreed on a short-term deal to avert the shutdown that they were talking. I never talk about shutdowns because it never happened. There's always a deal. The question is, what's the deal behind the deal? I have a new Fox News column up on how you can really actually put a bow on the supplemental which funds Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, the American defense base, uh, and that is to make everybody an offer they can't refuse. Because based on the Washington Post story of two days ago, large majority of Americans now want that wall built on the southern border. Lake and Riley has something to do with that, but so does all the other crime and all the other dysfunction that's come with 9 million illegal migrants crossing in Joe Biden's three years, both President Biden and former President Trump at the border today. I'll come back to that in a second. Supreme Court accepted cert yesterday. They are going to uh, undertake the presidential immunity appeal that will define what Donald Trump can be tried on and what he can't be tried on. Very important. I talked about that on Brett Baer's show last night. I'll come to it. As we did also talk about Cocaine Mitch, leader of the Republicans, Mitch McConnell, the longest serving leader of a party in the United States Senate in history, announced yesterday that the end of this term will mark his time stepping down as the major- as the minority or majority leader, depending on the elections, give or take one or two, and his successor will be elected by the Republican Senate conference after the elections this fall. That's going to be an electorate of between 49 and 54, even on our best day. We can't get higher than 54. And you and I will have nothing to do with that uh, because there are lots of candidates, but no one is going to be able to replace the Grim Reaper, the long game, Mitch McConnell. I did talk about that on Special Report. Let's start there. I, I, I got a chance to answer this. I was so happy to be on the panel last night because we were able to talk about the Supreme Court ruling and Leader McConnell stepping down. Here's my comments on Leader McConnell stepping down. Cut number three. 
Hugh, uh, I will say that John Thune is a big fundraiser, uh, and John Cornyn, John Barrasso, all three Johns are up for possible uh getting the Senate leadership role, um, depending on whether it's majority or minority. Uh, the other thing is, uh, is, you know, Mitch McConnell is 82 and he's acknowledging that he is um, he's old. He said in the speech, he said, uh, you know, my time has come. Uh, and yet said that father time is undefeated. Yeah. You know, father time yeah. is undefeated. It's right. The thing that needs to be emphasized rather than the here and the now is that he's the most effective Republican leader in either house of my lifetime. Without Mitch McConnell coming out the day after the untimely death of Justice Scalia and saying no hearings, no votes on any nominee, we would have lost the Supreme Court. And it is Mitch McConnell who saved the Constitution, in my view. He's also the guy who's been fighting for the First Amendment since McConnell versus FCC in 1982. He's a wonderful, wonderful leader. He is a wonderful, wonderful leader. We're not going to find anyone who has the combination of temperament and leadership ability that Mitch McConnell has brought to that job for 20-odd years. And I just got to tell you, the people who are pounding on it, they don't understand how America works. They don't understand the Constitution. Uh, you know, He may disappoint you today. Kurt Schlichter was saying this online last night. He might drive you nuts on it. You never know what the plan within the plan within the plan is with Leader McConnell. And whoever replaces him, I hope he hangs around and gives them advice on... It's like when Robert Byrd stepped aside when he got really old and George Mitchell was re- replaced him. And that was quality for quality. So we're going to need quality for quality. I know Dr. John Thunen is running. You know, Dr. John Barrasso of Wyoming, and we've got John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas. I read another story this morning that added in Steve Daines, who's doing a good job as NRSC chairman this time around. Rick Scott, and surprisingly, I saw Tom Cotton on that list. I've talked to Tom Cotton a lot. I've never gotten any sense that he was planning on trying to succeed Mitch McConnell. But we'll be fine. I just hope that uh, the Grim Reaper sticks around and tell them what to do and how to do it. We did also talk about the Supreme Court case. Earlier in the program, Professor Jonathan Turley had been on talking about how important the case was. Brett asked me about that as well. Cut number two. You know, with all of these legal proceedings, Hugh, it is it's kind of a race against time uh, to see what is going to happen before November. And that, I think, is the biggest thing about this announcement today from the Supreme Court. I think you're right, Brett, and I think Professor Turley was exactly right. I would look for a decision on this, which is a case of first impression of extraordinary importance. It will affect presidents on down through the centuries. I wouldn't expect a quick decision. I would think the end of uh, the term, the last day of June, first week in July, because they have to balance this very, very carefully with future presidents in mind. That given, I don't see either of the federal cases, either in Florida or Jack Smith in D.C., moving forward. I don't think the Atlanta case is moving at all. It's falling apart because of Fannie's testimony and the perjury that seems to be apparent there. The Manhattan one is the flimsiest case. That might even actually help Donald Trump if it goes to trial. But I think this Supreme Court ruling was expected. I'm glad they decided to review it. They, we need guidance on this question from the Supremes. We absolutely do. And uh, they're not going to rush in there. They took a long time on Nixon v. Fitzgerald, which had been around since 1982, where civil immunity, complete civil immunity for any presidential act done in the course of being president. I don't know what line they're going to draw. It is a case of first impression. Uh, everyone's throwing darts at the board. The briefs will be interesting to read. 
But if someone tells you they know how they're this is different from the Colorado case, you could walk away from the Colorado case and say they're going to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court as they should. But you have no idea. I have no idea what the court's going to do with this or how they're going to make a rule about uh, criminal liability for acts. While a pre- we, it's, it's long been the case you don't prosecute a president in office. And it's long been the case that we don't want prosecutions interfering with elections. So Jack Smith is really throwing a monkey wrench into this. And, of course, Alvin Bragg is the bozo in Manhattan who's brought the worst case of all. I'll tell you more about that. We also did discuss the fact that the border has finally arrived. Now, my new Fox News column this morning is about building the wall. And I put it on my X feed. It's the way to break the logjam on the supplemental. But it came up last night on Special Report on the panel. Juan Williams, Molly Hemingway with with me, with Brett Baer, of course, hosting Special Report. And I got just a small chance to talk about the border visits today. But I said everything I needed to say. Cut number four. Hugh, thoughts on this trip and what's going to come out of it? Immigration is the most important issue in this election, uh, Brett. And I will tell you that there is no way that Joe Biden can hide the fact that between eight and nine million illegal immigrants came across the border under his watch. That number may be 10 million by the fall. He shut down the wall. He reversed every Trump policy. So I don't care if he goes to the border every day between now and November. He will not be ahead of Donald Trump with voters who care about illegal immigration. And every single act of violence perpetrated by an illegal immigrant between now and then expected to be a headline. It is Joe Biden's Achilles heel along with his age. Yeah, Uh, that's it. It's his Achilles heel. Um, plus the fact that he might fall over uh, at the border today. He told everyone yesterday he had his physical, no cognitive test, and his doctor said, you're good to go. Right, right. So my Fox News column is entitled, Morning Glory, an offer they can't refuse. A wall on the southern border is one possible key to funding for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine. I'll keep posting that link over at X. Uh, Donald Trump says he may have to sell property to pay for $454 million penalty. Something is very wrong here. Uh, it's very wrong here that this is not all put on hold because that was Judge Crash Test Dummy who oversaw that that show trial on Trump Inc. that Letitia James brought. And I don't think anyone should be obliged to do anything. I hope some federal court puts a stop to that or a hold on it until the appeals are done. And Richard Lewis died at the age of 76. Do we have uh, my Lewis clip? I can play that. Um now, we'll hold it until I get back, because we've got a tribute to Richard Lewis, because he went to the Ohio State University, as you may or may not know, dead at the age of 76. Lots more coming up, more news to go over. Stay right where you are listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Yesterday, Mitch McConnell announced on the Senate floor that he will be stepping down as leader of the Republicans. He is the longest-serving leader of a party in American history. That's an extraordinary achievement. If you've read his book, The Long Game, you know why he's a genius at this. And The Long Game is must-reading for anyone who wants to be in politics or understand the Senate. And I understand a lot of people don't like Mitch McConnell. They don't understand the job. They don't understand the Senate. And they really don't understand how he saved the Constitution uh, on a couple of ways. One by bringing McConnell versus FEC in 2003, setting the stage for Citizens United down the road. But most importantly, when he held open the vacancy. Well, here's what I said about him on special report last night. Cut number three. 
Hugh, uh, I will say that John Thune is a big fundraiser, uh, and John Cornyn, John Barrasso, all three Johns are up for possible uh getting the Senate leadership role, um, depending on whether it's majority or minority. Uh, the other thing is, uh, is, you know, Mitch McConnell is 82 and he's acknowledging that he is um, he's old. He said in the speech, he said, uh, you know, my time has come. Uh, and yet he said, father time is undefeated. Yeah. You know, father time yeah. is undefeated. It's right. The thing that needs to be emphasized rather than the here and the now is that he's the most effective Republican leader in either house of my lifetime. Without Mitch McConnell coming out the day after the untimely death of Justice Scalia and saying no hearings, no votes on any nominee, we would have lost the Supreme Court. And it is Mitch McConnell who saved the Constitution, in my view. He's also the guy who's been fighting for the First Amendment since McConnell versus FCC in 1982. He's a wonderful, wonderful leader. He is. And here are his remarks, or a little bit of his remarks, yesterday on the floor of the Senate. Cut number one, Leader McConnell. As, as some of you may know, this has been a particularly difficult time for my family. We tragically lost Elaine's younger sister, Angela, just a few weeks ago. When you lose a loved one, particularly at a young age, there's a certain introspection that accompanies the grieving process. Perhaps it is God's way of reminding you of your own life's journey to reprioritize the impact of the world that we will all inevitably leave behind. I turned 82 last week, <clears throat> the end of my contributions are closer than I'd prefer. My career in the United States Senate began amidst the Reagan Revolution. The truth is, when I got here, I was just happy if anybody remembered my name. President Reagan called me Mitch O'Donnell. Close enough, I thought. My life, my wife Elaine and I got married on President Reagan's birthday, February 6th. It's probably not the most romantic thing to admit, but Reagan meant a lot to both of us. For 31 years, Elaine has been the love of my life, and I'm eternally grateful to have her by my side. I think back to my first days in the Senate with deep appreciation for the time that helped shape my view of the world. I'm unconflicted about the good within our country and the irreplaceable role we play as the leader of the free world. It's why I worked so hard to get the national security package passed earlier this month. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential 
to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. I, uh, I want you to understand what a man of humility. He is also indifferent to morons' criticisms, but he is very, very aware and respects the views of everyone in his caucus, which is why being the leader of a House or a Senate caucus, but especially in the Senate, you know, 80% of the people are very wonderful. 20% of the people need 80% of the attention. And Leader McConnell has done that better than any other Republican legislative leader of my lifetime. And it's going to be impossible to replace. A lot of good candidates want to try. He'll support whomever wins. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. Representative Mike Gallagher is chairman of the House Select Committee on the engagement with the Chinese Communist Party, and he's back from Taiwan. Good morning, Congressman. Welcome home. What did you see? What do we need to know? Well, it's always great to visit our friends in Taiwan. Taiwan, as you know, just went through an election, uh, the first democratic society of, I think, 41. They're going to be going to the polls this year. And despite relentless attempts by the Chinese Communist Party to interfere with that election, uh, to meddle with the results via bots online, threatening to rip up trade deals if their preferred party didn't get elected, the Taiwanese people succeeded. It's a remarkably free society thriving in the shadow of authoritarian aggression. And I think we can derive some lessons from that for our own upcoming election. One is that it would be a bad idea to, la- to allow CCP-controlled or influenced applications like TikTok to play such a dominant role in our news ecosystem. The time is now to either ban or force a sale of TikTok before it influences an election or even affects our sense of national identity, pitting Americans against Americans, which, of course, is the CCP strategy to mess with us domestically. The second thing I'd say, Hugh, is that we still aren't doing enough to speed up the delivery of weapons that the Taiwanese have purchased under the foreign military sales process. This is a key point, Hugh. Taiwan is a very successful country. It's a, it's a powerhouse, a superpower when it comes to microchip manufacturing. They're not asking for charity. They've purchased weapons from us. We just can't deliver them. The backlog has not gotten any better. We need to be moving heaven and earth to arm Taiwan to the teeth and explore creative options like co-production with the Taiwanese on certain systems that we don't need to be producing everything domestically. We can share technology and have them produce some of it domestically. So there's been, there was good, there was bad, there was ugly uh, in the trip, but we have amazing friends on the ground in Taiwan, and we need to stand strong against increasing CCP aggression. You know, Chairman Gallagher, I was with some uh, former Trump administration national security officials this past weekend, one of whom is a big advocate of going to our, quote, ghost fleet, close quote, and sending everything that we've got mothballed to them, including the LCSs we're already retiring, including the A-10s that are going to run out of flight time, including every munition that's got a shelf life. Have we done that? 
No, we have not. And an idea that is related to that that we have not sufficiently explored is the idea of containerizing fires and putting them on ships that effectively act as weapons barges, which could eventually be autonomous. So you think about like we have these precision guided munitions they need to be fired from something. Imagine them being inside of something that looks a lot like a Connex box. It could be put on a ship. It could be put on land. By the way, it could be right next to identical-looking Connex boxes that could be empty. It would create a nightmare for People's Liberation Army planners. That's the type of creativity we need. And as we've talked about before, Hugh, now that we are no longer bound by the constraints of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, we have the ability to put in place ground and launch systems uh, throughout the first and second island chain in the Indo-Pacific. We can get very creative and do to the Chinese what they've done to us over the last 20 years, which is use relatively low cost missiles to keep our ships at bay. And at the end of the day, we just have to have the capability to paraphrase the former Democratic administration undersecretary of defense, Michelle Flournoy, to put the entire PLA Navy fleet on the bottom of the Taiwan Strait within 72 hours. That's sort of the Manhattan project we must commit ourselves to. Now, Chairman Gallagher, part of that would require the funding that is in the supplemental that presently sits loss in the House. I have a Fox News column today saying, make them an offer they can't refuse. The Washington Post reported this week that building the wall on the southern border is now more popular than ever. It's got a very strong majority. What do you think about there are a couple of things in the Ukraine funding that have to be stripped out. Senator Cotton says we we shouldn't be funding their government. We should be sending him weapons. And I can understand that amendment. What about adding an amendment on the border, especially specifically the wall as a means of bringing more votes uh, onto the supplemental? Well, I read your op-ed, Hugh, and I got to say, whoever ghostwrites these things for you is very smart. I know you didn't go to schools that would allow you to to dictate prose like that, uh, but I I was very impressed nonetheless. Uh, I agree. I mean, listen, the crisis continues to get worse. Uh, A wall is a a critical part of the solution. I would like to go further. I mean, I'm an ardent supporter of H.R. 2, and there's some niche things that I wonder you would have a legal perspective on. For example, our immigration court judges – don't even have contempt authority. So they're not able to even enforce order in their court or when people overstay uh, their, their court order, they can't do anything about it. So uh, a, a, there would be other things I'd like to see, see in an ideal bill that fundamentally secures the southern border. But in such a compromise bill, I do think it's reasonable for us to request a border wall. The crisis continues to get worse, even in, in districts like mine, which is far removed geographically from the southern border. We feel the chaos and the death and the destruction, particularly related to fentanyl, every single day. So the time is now to act. I think it's reasonable for us to insist on such a concession from the White House. Thus far, however, President Biden has it seemed like he just wants to demagogue the issue and use it as a cudgel in an election year rather than actually coming to the table with serious solutions. Yeah, that's why I want to make them an offer they can't refuse. And if they turn down the border wall, the, the mask is off. They're not really about border security. And I think this visit today is silly. But I don't think your visit to Taiwan was silly. Who went with you? And I am curious about whether or not you think the Taiwanese are rebuilding their defensive capability on a daily basis. Are they expanding it almost daily? Who went with me? It was a bipartisan trip. My ranking member, Raja Krishnamurthy, came, as did Democrat from Massachusetts, Seth Moulton. We had Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota. Uh, We had John Molinar. Um, So it was a truly bipartisan 
trip, which is great. I mean, to send that signal of support to our friends in Taiwan, I think is important, important for the committee uh, to do that. As to whether they're rebuilding their defense industrial base on a daily basis, one positive sign is that uh, President Tsai, the outgoing president, has increased the mandatory service requirement from four months to one year and is trying with our help to implement very realistic training for the Taiwanese that have to serve their country for that extended period of time. I think Israel has a lot of lessons that Taiwan could learn from in this regard. We're still not doing enough. And to get back to the point I made earlier, my sense is that the defense establishment, the political leadership in Taiwan want to go faster. They want to go farther. We, however, have to do a better job of providing them the weapons that they have purchased. I was very positively impressed after my meeting with the president-elect, William Lai. Uh, I think he's going to be a great partner for the United States going forward. He intends to continue and build off of the defense policies of President Tsai. So that's very good for America. That's good for peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. But again, it just takes leadership at the Department of Defense here in America. Really, you have to fight your own bureaucracy to get some of this stuff done. And we're just not attacking it with a sense of urgency. We're not doing it as if you know, World War Three depended on it, and it very well might. We have to deter it. Chairman Gallo, you got hard, but your won't. people are yelling at me already because you got a hard out at 43. So I want to ask you one last question. Do you think that China is leaning into an invasion before the transition to a new president? Do you, are, is there a sense of urgency on the island that the threat is real and immediate? I, I think there is a sense of urgency. My own argument for some time has been that we entered the window of maximum danger with the election last month, and it, things will get most acute uh, the closer we get to an election and also the conditions for a cross-strait invasion, which are never great, by the way. This is a very hard thing to do, get better about four months from now. And so I really think we could be heading into you know, the mother of all October surprises if we don't put in place a deterrence by denial posture. More broadly, I think this decade is when Xi Jinping will try to make a move to realize his lifelong ambition. Things get much harder for him demographically in the 2030s, and he also gets much older, though that has not prevented American you know, I, politicians from I'm glad out. I came that's up with problem. that term, the mother of all October surprises. I'm going to patent that. That's mine. Chairman Gallagher, good to and see you. That's you. Not that. The mother of all October it. surprises. You just took that from me and ripped it out of my mouth, and I sent you that in my notes. Honest to goodness, these Wisconsin people. The mother of all October surprises. Thank you, Chairman Gallagher. I want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Gentilissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And that um, is a, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. Good morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. You do it live in the ReliefFactor.com studio. Joined by Noah Rothman, senior writer for National Review. Good morning, Noah. Welcome. Thank you. Happy Thursday. And to you, I woke up this morning and see that an Illinois state judge threw Donald Trump off of the ballot in Illinois. Do you think Americans are happy with secretaries of state in Maine and district court judges in Illinois or even state Supreme Courts in Colorado attempting to deny them their choice for president? I do not. 
Uh, I was happy to see that this decision was instantly uh, enjoined. It was blocked right away. And it should be, uh, especially since this issue is before the Supreme Court. It's quite apparent um, because the individuals who pursue this make it apparent. Let's say that it's Colorado Supreme Court. It's a very narrow decision, 3-4. But uh, the the office holder in Maine who did this pursued fame and acclamation in the wake of this decision. She wanted the attention that it would generate for her and and perhaps the cachet among resistance liberals. Uh, And it it should be uh, rebuked. They deserve to get all the attention they seek. A lot of it should be negative. And I think they're going to be on the receiving end of that. There's a lot. The front end of this is very rewarding psychologically, I think, because you get all this acclamation. It's only later that you find out that you've really stepped all over the statute and made a fool of yourself. Yeah, but the Colorado Supreme Court has done almost indelible injury to the reputation of that body when they're going to get rebuked. 9-0 or maybe 8-1, but I think it's going to be 9-0. Which leads me to yesterday's grant of cert in the Trump-Smith case that the Supreme Court will hear arguments on April 22nd. I said last night on special report, based on being a con law professor for 25 years and practicing law for longer and all the various jobs, I don't see them issuing this decision until the end of June or early July, because this one matters for generations, Noah. When you define something to do with the presidency, it's not an R.D. decision. It affects every president going forward, and it's a case of first impression. When do you think it's going to come down? And do you think in the meantime, Alvin Bragg will pause or anybody will pause? Jack Smith doesn't have a choice. He has to pause. But what about the state proceedings in Georgia and in Manhattan? Well, look, I have precisely zero expertise academically or professionally in this arena. That being said, your assessment seems to be the consensus among those who do, who believe that this will come down sometime later in June. And most likely it'll sort of split the baby. So the idea here was that uh, Jack Smith sought if they didn't just outright not take not grant cert, they would uh, expedite the decision. And that's what they're doing. Donald Trump didn't want that. He didn't want them to do this at all. Delay it indefinitely. So they're kind of splitting the baby here. And you can see a decision coming down from the Supreme Court that denies Donald Trump's immunity claims while also invalidating the Supreme Court uh, decision in Colorado, um, kind of giving giving sort of half measures to everybody involved here. Uh, And that the idea then is that and this is causing profound consternation among Donald Trump's critics on the left and some on the right, too, that because this decision won't come down until the summer, early summer, most likely denying the notion that Donald Trump cannot be co- prosecuted post after off leaving office for committing alleged crimes as official acts in office, that Judge Chutkin, who's presiding over this case, uh, this is the fake electors January 6th stuff, that she will not be able to hold a trial because it is too close in proximity to the election. It would be um, gout, gauche. And it's really... Is, there is, is a Department of Justice that's my, rule. That's there, my question, because it's just optics, just appearances. Yeah, there, there is a Department of Justice rule against uh, conducting prosecutions in the 90 days prior to an election, which may kick in. But it is interfering with the election in a big way. All of these are. And I'm going to predict, Noah, and it's pretty early on, they're not going to totally reject immunity for future presidents. They're going to remand this to Judge Chutkin to consider a number of factors that go into whether or not a president is acting within the scope of his duties. And if not, if such a finding is made, it's got to be a separate evidentiary hearing and a separate ruling that the conduct in question is alleged by Jack Smith uh, is, in fact, criminal enough 
That's what I mean. Criminal enough. It's going to be a hard standard to apply. Let me switch over to immigration, Noah. Both the president and the former president are at the border today. I want to play for you a very short segment of what I told Brett Baer last night on Special Report. See if you agree with it. I was asked about these visits, and I said this, cut number four. Hugh, thoughts on this trip and what's going to come out of it? Immigration is the most important issue in this election, uh, Brett. And I will tell you that there is no way that Joe Biden can hide the fact that between eight and nine million illegal immigrants came across the border under his watch. That number may be 10 million by the fall. He shut down the wall. He reversed every Trump policy. So I don't care if he goes to the border every day between now and November. He will not be ahead of Donald Trump with voters who care about illegal immigration. And every single act of violence perpetrated by an illegal immigrant between now and then expected to be a headline. It is Joe Biden's Achilles heel along with his age. Yeah. All right. So, Noah Rothman, am I right or am I wrong? I don't disagree with you. I think that voters who are most motivated by immigration, first of all, we got a lot of new ones in the, in the most recent months, just accompanying the increasing urgency of the issue itself. But I think most voters who are attuned to immigration are not inclined to uh, towards Joe Biden's efforts to repair his reputation on that score. However, we have seen Joe Biden begin to take this seriously in ways he had not for the remain for most of his presidency. He's leaning on Mexico to police its side of the Rio Grande. He's restarting deportation flights with Venezuela. Um, he's talking about executive orders that might borrow from the Senate supplemental and redefining what it means to be an asylum seeker in this country, tightening those standards. And we saw yesterday efforts by his administration to lean on municipalities that had previously said, we're not going to work with ICE officials. We're going to we're going to just ignore federal law in this area uh, and saying, no, you can't you can't actually do that. And we don't know how much he's going to apply uh, carrots and sticks in that effort. But the effort has has begun. So Biden knows that he's got a political liability on his hand here. He knows it and he's beginning to do something about it. The question I have is how much does that repair the damage he's done to his brand among swing voters, persuadable voters and independents? They're the ones who are going to decide this election. Does that offset when there's acts of violence and there will be more acts of violence attributable to undocumented migrants? Does that offset the shock of that saying, "Okay, well, Joe Biden's actually doing something about it. Let's give him I'll give him the credit that you think he's going to try and get for changing course, even if he does all those things. Does it matter, do you think, Noah, to those those voters on whom the issue of illegal migration? It's a flood. It's going to be nine to ten million people by November. Does he can he possibly reverse the impression that he soft on immigration? Not among those who believe that already, I don't think. Um, it's touching every country, every country, every, every county in America. I'm vast, far removed from the border in my undisclosed location in the hills of New Jersey. And we have uh, you know, headlines in my local county about how we're going to have to house migrants in ways that are uh, very difficult to do. It has to appropriate facilities that are otherwise in use for civilian purposes. So uh, it does touch every community and it is a source of profound consternation. My con- my question remains whether it is geographically distributed in ways that are disadvantageous to Republicans who want to make it an issue. Most migration voters are in states that are already red. The question is, does it move the needle on the margins in states that are in play? And my- I'm right on the border of Pennsylvania. So there's one. Does that does it become is it such an issue, such a profound issue 
that has no mitigating features to it by Election Day. And it doesn't even have to be by Election Day, three months out from Election Day, at which point your views are likely hardened on whatever the matter is. Is there enough progress made between then and now to shape opinions? If there is no progress made by, I would say, September, then probably not. Probably the cake is baked. But I still think there's there's a few months where Joe Biden can at least demonstrate that he's aware of the issue and is doing something to address it. Whether that resolves his problem among immigration voters, I doubt. But it could it could have some positive effects on the margins. You know, the uh, tragic murder of Lake and Riley, which the AP attempted to write off as the dangers of jogging and the mayor of Athens blamed on Donald Trump. Unbelievably. I mean, incredibly, he blamed it on Donald Trump. That's the kind of story it's uh, people who are old enough. Remember, Willie Horton, that was the criminal. In this case, the victim, Lake and Riley, will be remembered. And I think every time one of these happens, we have a minute, Noah. Do you think any crime by illegal immigrants who entered the country under Joe Biden will go unremarked upon between now and the election? I mean, some will float to the top of the headlines more than others, most likely, especially because episodes like this, which are so, so unnecessary. Uh, this guy went through this, the system in New York City, was released before ICE could issue a detainer. So it, it's an indictment of the blue state model, as well as Joe Biden. That's yes. part of the reason why I think this is resonant. Uh, and yeah, there will be more episodes like this that will illustrate the problem and illustrate Joe Biden's complicity in it. Um, you know, well, will I, this will there be another one that'll capture the headlines like this? I hope not, frankly. I hope not, but I I think it's almost inevitable given 9 million people. You just have a bell curve of good and bad, and 10% of those people are the worst, and that's almost a million really bad guys. Noah C. Rothman, follow him on X, read him at nationalreview.com. I appreciate it, Noah. Join you again next week. Come right back, America. This is the Market Report, which is brought to you by our friends at American Federal, amfed.com. Americanfederal.com, actually, amfed coin and bullion. Sells you gold, silver, platinum. If you're like the one, 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 one hundredth percent of people that collects coins, you can deal with them, too. They're very, very sophisticated. As for Nick or any of his team, Nick Grovich is my pal. If you want to buy gold, buy gold directly from Nick. AmericanFederal.com or call 800-221-7694. Welcome back, America. Josh Kroshauer is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. He joins me today by phone as he's in a hotel with Iffy Internet. Josh, good morning. Welcome. Good to have you back. Good morning, Hugh. Uh, There is a headline over at the Wall Street Journal this morning. Hamas is losing every battle in Gaza. It still thinks it could win the war. And Sinwar actually has a quote in there. We've got Israel right where we want them. What do you think? Well, militarily, Israel has, has been winning the war. They, they've, they've taken out a, you know, the vast majority of Hamas battalions, and that the debate now is whether they go into Rafah, and, and the debate is whether to focus on a, a big deal that would exchange some hostages, just 40 to 50 or so, as has been reported in the press, for uh, Palestinian prisoners and, and, and to have a pause, at least, for a number of weeks. Um, in, in, in the fighting. Uh, I, I don't think that's going anywhere, despite what President Biden said last week. Um, but the challenge is sort of the diplomatic dance that BB is doing with both the U.S. and other Western allies and the military need to kind of finish the job and, and find Sinwar, take him out um, and, 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 you know, end the war by, by taking out Hamas leadership in, in, in Rafa. Yeah, I, I listened to a podcast yesterday, for heaven's sake, Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein-Halevi, uh, talking about, do we go into Rafa? Do we not go into Rafa? 
I don't think they have any choice but to go into Rafa. They may open up a humanitarian corridor for a week to let women and children out. But they got to go in, don't they? They can't leave Hamas alive and cornered. I mean, that, that, that's what the majority of, of the Israeli public, uh, based on polls and, and based on just the internal debate in the war cabinet, himself yesterday uh, made, made a comment saying, like, we're, we're going to go in, underscoring that there is going to be at some point, um, you know, an, an offensive in, in, in Tarafa. The question is the timing. The question is, is there any deal that can be struck, you know, in, in, the, in the interim? to release hostages. Um, there is a growing, you know, the, I think the, the, the return of partisan politics in Israel has, has, has come about in the last few weeks with um, families of hostages pushing, putting pressure on the Israeli government to do more, to, to maybe give up more as part of a deal to get at least some of the hostages released. But 90%, if I, if I understand, and I listen to Dan Sinor, I listen to the Times of Israel every day, I listen to, as I said, Daniel Hartman, across the spectrum, there is consensus that Hamas has to be destroyed as a threat to people living in the south of Israel. And you cannot do that unless you go into Rafah. So I, I think it's all nonsense. And Joe Biden's comment was just in advance of the Michigan primary. And they've now learned, haven't they, that this this pro-Hamas vote just isn't very big. I mean, yeah, let's talk about the Michigan primary. You, got, you had 13 percent of, of voters cast an uncommitted ballot in Michigan, which was not substantially higher than the uncommitted vote against Obama in uh, 2012. It was about 10 to 11 percent of the vote. Uh, it's all in dear. I mean, it, one of the more, I mean, as, as going through the numbers, the, the base, the, the problem Biden has is in the college towns. It's the young voters that are off the charts, have a totally anti-Israel perspective compared to almost everyone else in, in the country. Um, you look at that, that, that was where the, along with your born in the Arab American communities in Michigan, it was the campuses where the anti-Israel uncommitted vote was the highest. And that is good. I mean, look, Biden, you know, he's in a no-win situation. That's, that's part, the young voters have been part of the Democratic base, part of the Democratic coalition for quite some time. They really don't like Biden. They, they don't think he's left enough for them. And he, he, and if he goes further left, he's going to lose a lot more voters in the middle. So he's in this sort of catch-22, not just in Michigan, but across the country. And you can't really placate radicals on the left um, and, and expect to actually have majority support in this country. And I think he realizes that, and they've been making symbolic gestures. They've pandered on, on a number of fronts, including you know, sending some uh, foreign policy advisors to Dearborn and a couple weeks ago and uh, talking about how, how tough they are on BB. But the reality is they, they're, 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 there's a schizophrenia between the actual policy and what they're saying. And when they're not actually supporting, even though there's, you know, I think their policy has been supportive of Israel, you know, in terms of deed, the, when you're not saying why you support Israel, when you don't have Biden, when you don't have all these leading spokesmen, Green Jean-Pierre and, and, and folks on the podium, defending why Israel needs to win this war, you're, 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 you're losing the, you know, you're, you're losing on more than just a political front. Yeah, he, all he has to do is lose 5% of his pro friends of Israel vote. Uh, by virtue of his ambiguity and his dancing, and he's hurt. Uh, last question, Josh. I was struck by the total number. Uh, the Republican turnout was significantly higher than the Democratic turnout. Now, it is a primary, and Joe Biden doesn't have an opponent, but he did sort of have an opponent in Michigan. They did try and turn out the vote, and Republicans romped in terms of numbers. Yeah. What's that tell you for the fall? we got 45 seconds. Yeah, I do think the Republican base is much more engaged. We'll look at the, the overall numbers on Super Tuesday to see if that, that continues in other states. I, I do think both parties have coalition issues. We just talked about the Democratic issues with young voters, anti-Israel, you know, Arab in Michigan. 
But for uh, Republicans, it's, it's, it's the suburban uh, swing voters. And that, that, that was the challenge, uh, not just in Michigan, but in all the other early, early primary and caucus states for the Republicans. So the other big question for Republicans is, can Trump bring home sort of the more traditional Republican voters that voted for Nikki Haley and still have real issues with his candidacy? You know, in those suburbs, our moms who worry about their daughters on college campuses being murdered, as happened in Georgia. I'm, I'm really not worried at this point, especially with the Supreme Court holding arguments in April about a trial coming to this because the Manhattan one is a joke. But Josh Kroshauer will keep talking to you. Follow Josh on Twitter on X, I should say on X, at Josh Kroshauer and at uh, Jewish Insider as well. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, General Eastman. Thanks, all of you, for listening. I'll be back tomorrow on the Friday edition of the Gugulet Show.